This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is October 18th, 2023. I'm Scott Lunderbaum. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, we have some new bills coming forward in BC to not ban Airbnbs and VRBOs in the province, but significantly restrict them. They are also going to significantly restrict the powers of Surrey and other pa- municipalities looking at changing the police in their city. And federally, the Supreme Court strikes a blow to the government's impact assessment laws and the NDP have a convention. We'll get into all of it. First, make sure to go check out patreon.com slash politicoast. Give us a few bucks a month, get into our Patreon Slack, and enjoy the continuous conversations we have there with all our supporters. Let's start with the big provincial legislation this week is our new bill to restrict short-term rentals. This is a much expected and promised bill from the David E.B. government as part of their housing plan. They're, I guess we're just going to slow trickle this out for the whole fall sitting. Uh, we're still waiting on these zoning reforms and other bills on housing, but this one, this one's impactful, I think, and we can get into that in a second once we talk about what it actually will do. So this bill will focus on three key areas. It gives local governments more powers to fine and identify short-term rentals. Uh, it's basically going to ban short-term rentals in major cities from anything except a principal residence, and we can get into what that means specifically, and it will give some additional ways for the province to ensure Airbnb and these other platforms are following the rules and powers to enforce it, because that's been the biggest challenge that municipalities have had in regulating short-term rentals. Yeah, so before we get into any of the details, what's what's your big takeaway here on this, Scott? I mean, the government... Uh hinted they were going to be doing this like none of this is really a surprise at all um it'd be just outright nothing but uh principal residence is maybe a little more bold than i thought they were going to be on it at the same time like bc has not been doing a lot of hotel building and during the last few years, the government's actually bought up quite a few hotels and converted them into uh, shelter and social housing. All of which means like the net effect in BC has probably been a decrease in the number of available hospitality accommodations, and a certain amount of that has been taken up by uh, Airbnb and the like. And if you're going to be clamping down on that while BC still has a uh, decent amount of its economy tied to tourism, there's probably going to be a bunch of unexpected uh, 
or at least unanticipated by the government uh, costs on all of that, that uh, could potentially further squeeze uh, the tourism sector. So, I mean, I get what they're doing about housing, but th this really feels like one of those, we are going to see the problems with it in six months or years time, uh, where it's going to pop up somewhere other than the actual you know, long-term housing market. Yeah, to put some of the numbers in here, the province is saying that in Victoria, for example, there are 1,600 hosts that operate under, quote, legal non-conforming clause, uh, which will be banned by this new law. So that, in theory, could open up 1,600 new units to the rental or sale market, depending on what the individual owners decide to do in each of those cases. In Vancouver, 30% of hosts are operating illegally, according to some estimates. And so it's not a no, it's not a zero number like this isn't a silver bullet to solve housing obviously but no like it gets us like maybe a, a year maybe two's housing production which which is so helpful right because there yeah. are these goals now which could be more ambitious but there's at least a start to try to build supply but what do you do in the you know in that first year before houses magically appear right it takes time to build things and this is a way to snap them Thanos style into existence instead of out of existence. I guess you're snapping Airbnb out of existence in the province. So you are still allowed to rent out rooms in your principal residence. If you have a secondary suite or a laneway house, you can do one of those. So there will still be Airbnb listings in major centers. It's just you're not going to be able to rent out a whole house anymore. Um, and the regulations basically say any this will apply to any municipality over 10,000 people unless it's specifically exempt as a resort region or mountain area like Whistler sounds like will be uh, um, exempted. There's also a requirement in here that uh, the platforms are going to have to share data with the province. Uh, operators are going to have to register with the province next year once the database is built for that. And on Airbnb and Verbo, you're going to have to list your business license if you are running locally. And there, you'll have to get a business license from your local municipality and regional di districts will also have the ability to grant those for the first time. So this seems well thought out with just that challenge you flagged about like, how do we deal with the hotel demand, which will, <laughs> which exists already. Like there, the period of buying out the hotels was the pandemic when no one was staying in them and it was a nice solution then but people started traveling again very quickly it turned out and yeah and i think even at the time we flagged that 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 buying up the hotels was probably going to have some long-term consequences that would not be good for the province so yeah like it's a lot of these feel like short-term things that don't really get at the the long-term problems on these uh, also, as part of this, they're going to be uh, increasing the amounts that municipalities and regional districts can find. So uh, municipalities are going up from a maximum of 1,000 to 3,000 uh, per infraction per day. And regional districts are going to have their finding ability increase from 2,000 up to 50,000 so there's some real teeth being added to this. Yeah. And what I've also found interesting is the response to the legislation 
has, I mean, like, it's going to divide along certain lines, but overall, from a few forums and, like, headlines I've read, has been positive with the exception of people who have, like, staked their retirement on running Airbnbs, which is, like, sad for them, but also like small fiddle sad of like you had you made a bad investment and you could still sell the house you own and like there have been shifts in the housing market and so there are some people who bought six months ago or a year ago at like the peak and now houses are a little bit less and so they're going to be out a hundred thousand dollars or something but it's still like I, I struggle to feel as bad for you as I do for the people who can't afford housing yeah, I mean, I've also seen uh, criticism just on a more general, like people should generally be able to uh, rent out their properties in the way they see fit type thing. You know, fair, but like, you know, if that's the sort of thing you want, probably don't vote for the NDP. Yeah, that's a good point. They're not burning too many voters of their own with a bill like this. Um, this isn't quite the we are going to force you to have a renter in every extra bedroom you have in your house kind of bill though i have seen that level good, of that absurdity would be like a crazy overreach that would find a lot more beds for people to sleep in though that would immediately solve the housing crisis possibly it would also make for like a lot of terrible situations mm -hmm. of like randoms being forced together but yeah i mean that would be practically soviet and a guaranteed way for the government to lose the next election oh we're losing the plot here but let's move into the other big bill of this week this is the you know improving police jurisdiction process bill i don't have the names of the bills in front of me that would have been smart this is the let's fix surrey and prevent this from happening again bill you know what they should have just called this the stop messing around Brenda Locke bill. Although I have a feeling that probably would be considered too unparliamentary to uh, actually make it into a legislation title. Yeah, we don't get fun bill titles at the provincial level and even at the federal level. I well, think they attitude. only bring them in when they're like talking to the media. Even the text of the bill itself has just like a, an act to amend the criminal code. And you're like, okay, this bill, the Police Act changes will provide clarity for the people of Surrey by basically saying that you have to go with the Surrey Police Service and the Minister of Public Safety and the Solicitor General can just finish it. Uh, he's taking all the power away from the city. The city is, we mentioned, I think, last week, or I mentioned on Canby Report, is suing the province. Um, this doesn't eliminate that lawsuit, but it pretty much makes it moot because what's the point of their lawsuit when the law is now that the province can do whatever it wants, and the province, as we've seen elsewhere, can do whatever it wants to cities. Yeah, that thing's going to go nowhere. In fact, I would not be surprised if the province just like moves to dismiss the, that out as being moot. <sighs> the bill for other cities going forward will say that once a city decides it wants to either switch to a local police force or to once it decides it wants to change its police force, we'll have to create a transition plan, present it to the minister, and the minister can approve it. But then there is a legal obligation on the city to complete that transition. 
Uh, and it also gives the province some ability to just like take over if they're not meeting the uh, minister's approved plan. Oh, makes sense. One of those things where probably nobody has ever needed to put together this kind of legislation before because no municipality tried to play the game. Surrey's tried to play with this one. So it's been a case of plugging a hole nobody thought was there, but uh, yeah, man, that, that Surrey police transition just sounds like a nightmare. So I, I get why the province just got fed up. It's like, no, we're tired of playing games, sending letters back and forth. We're just going to put this on paper and it's just going to go ahead. There, like, there is a critique of this bill, I think, out that you could make that if we're going to say that policing should be in the hands of a municipality, then they should be able to change their minds. They should be, you know, like Surrey did. They had an election. Now, it doesn't help that Surrey's last two elections were the least definitive plurality votes they could have had. Um, but you could imagine a situation where, you know, a Doug McCallum type promises a police transition and actually gets a real mandate or a sizable majority of the vote, but it goes poorly and another mayor comes in in four years and says, no, we are going to fix this. Uh, but now their hands are tied. So I guess at very least they won't waste their time campaigning on it, but it does undermine that kind of level, but... Apparently, this yeah. has only happened once, so maybe that's not an issue to worry about. Well, I, I think that, like you said, these were non-decisive elections, and the province was probably worried about, okay, what happens in three years' time if there's yet another change and a new mayor wants to go back to the original plan? Like, I get the... In a democracy, you should always be able to uh, change course. At the same time, like big, complicated processes, you kind of need to be able to just give an answer, yes or no, to something, and not, you know, constantly be going back and forth on it. Like, I mean, democracy is important, but so is having just a government that can actually do stuff and a fairly minor are you sure you want to go through with this because if you do like there's no backing out yeah, not an unreasonable compromise on that yeah the opposition parties particularly the bc united and conservatives are opposed to this legislation they have decided that brenda Locke has made the right call and they should go back to the rcmp um previous comments from Kevin Falcon have actually endorsed the Surrey Police Service, but I, you know, I all allow people to change their minds. Um, it is an interesting level that the prov, you know, the pro different provincial parties are having to essentially get weighed in, pulled into the chaos that has become Surrey politics at this point. But all politics is local in the end, I guess. And Surrey is uh, one of those locations that. Uh local politics really becomes provincial politics because that's where elections are won or lost. Well, the most localist politics you can get is where you go to take a shit. And <laughs> the BC Building Trades Union, representing 40,000 workers in the province on Monday, called on the province to mandate flush toilets on construction sites with more than 25 workers. The idea being, porta potties suck, are gross, and 
we should have some, you know, basic standards for workers. Yeah, the few times I actually have to go out to a job site for work, those are always my least favorite part of uh, those uh, job site visits. And here we go. A few days later, the premier said, yeah, we will uh, follow through with that and require flush toilets at construction sites going forward. Uh, The details are still waiting to be announced beyond what he said at the union's convention. Um, Quebec, I guess, had similar regulations brought in in 2015. So these aren't, you know, novel problems to be solved. Other industries like the film industry don't rely on porta-potties for their actors and crew. Um, So, uh, good news. (laughs) So, like, just on the, it's going to be, nicer is is good my question or concern on this one is more is the toilet rental industry actually well capitalized to do this like they've probably you know roughly what the market demand for uh portable toilets is sitting around in bc right now is probably a lot of uh porta potties and not all that many uh, flush toilets beyond what the film industry requires. So depending on how this is phased in, I could see that actually being a problem of there's just not enough flush toilets, portable flush toilets to go around. This does feel like an easier problem to solve than housing, for example, in that I'm presuming most of the flush toilets they'll be delivering to construction sites will be in shipping containers that are pre-built basically like bathroom stalls. Yes, again, or, there's a lot of uh, trailers. There you go. Exactly. Those though. kind of things. So those, you know, take time to build, but the regulations in theory will probably take about a year or so to get in. And so, you know, buy your stock in portable toilet construction. Now there's my, there's a Politico stock tip of the week. I feel like you should not take financial advice from the podcast. Not this one. <laughs> Well, speaking of uh, financial advice and uh, somewhat uh, legally questionable ideas, uh, Merit's decided they are going to stop paying the provincial government after uh, they have been stuck dealing with a bunch of ER closures. Yeah, the local Nicola Valley Hospital has had like a unreal number of closures over the past couple of years uh, citing you know a lack of staff and all the other challenges hospitals across the province are facing so in response mayor mike goats uh has said that his city's response is a tax strike they're going to start withholding payments to the province for hospital services for days that the hospital is not available or in service um it's not exactly clear to me which dollars this amount is coming from, which fund this is coming from. It sounds like some in t- parts of the province, the municipalities do have to pay um, essentially a local MSP or like a tax for health services that Metrovan doesn't necessarily have to, uh, which is an interesting strategy. It's probably not legal, but I do respect... 
like the idea of uh getting creative with yeah i i kind of like this like we said um provinces basically hold the giant stick when it comes to municipalities and they pretty much get their way um that said yeah definitely uh i kind of appreciate the uh cleverness of this and way to actually highlight the uh issue and you know if we actually had a competent opposition party the government would be taking a huge amount of heat for this but uh that doesn't seem to be uh something that's available in bc at the moment um so yeah just uh as far as political stunts go this is uh one of the better ones and i mean neither of us are lawyers but i did like even see like an outside case for you know arguably like a breach of contract if the uh province isn't holding up its end of the bargain on this sort of thing probably wouldn't stand up just because if this is some sort of tats the province just gets to set the tats rates but uh i don't know it, it would be interesting to see this get fought out in court yeah ironically this news came out just over a week ago on october 10th uh at on the same day the province announced an approval of well, or came to an agreement for an approval of a deal with the Nicola Valley Hospital as well as the Shuswap Lake General Hospital and this followed another agreement in Oliver that they would be giving seven and a half million dollars to these hospitals to help quote stabilize physician emergency room coverage uh, in particular they are allowing them to move forward that with that new compensation model we've talked about in the past where physicians will be paid based on um, the time they spend at the hospital rather than just a fee-for-service model, which should incentivize some doctors to work there because it's a much clearer uh, and easier-to-manage pay structure for this kind of work rather than, I don't know, doing something where you can cram six visits into an hour and f charge people that way. So that's still going to take time to stabilize the hospital, um, yeah. And I'm not even sure if like oh, throwing a little mo extra money at this problem is really going to solve it. Since the current government got elected, uh, healthcare spending is up something like 20% in real terms. So like a lot of money is getting thrown into the system. And the fact that you can't keep an ER open all the times it should be open... Speech to something more than just not enough money floating around the system here. So, know, maybe it'll do a little good, but th this seems to be a much bigger problem than just not enough provincial money coming into it. So, I'm skeptical this will actually fix the issue. Well, that's why the pay structure is so such an important aspect of the changes that they're bringing in um it's not guaranteed to work but it it's trying something at least i mean the challenge with some of these structural problems is there's no quick immediate like there aren't doctors and nurses you can magic into existence at these facilities um yeah on the other hand you know, government's been uh here since 2017 yeah. they uh probably should have done more earlier and 
it's at this point it's kind of on them if they haven't uh pulled the levers that have a long lead time way back when like Let's move to the federal government, where we have a major Supreme Court of Canada ruling that came out on Friday, of course, the day after we recorded. This followed a reference case from the province of Alberta that asked the Court of Appeal there first to rule on whether the impact assessment law of the federal government, C-69, or as Jason Kenney called it, the No Pipelines Act, uh, was constitutional or not. The Court of Appeal had struck it down and the Supreme Court of Canada found the same by a majority of seven to two, I believe. Yeah, a lot of people didn't expect uh, this to go this way, which <sighs> struck me as odd because it's about as clear a case as federal overreach as possible, um, which you know maybe says more about kind of people's view of the courts than it, of the current composition of the court than anything. Um but yeah, so basically the act uh, tightened up some rules around uh, things that are like very clearly federal jurisdiction, you know, crosses international borders, provincial borders, that sort of thing. Uh, but there's also a big, we just as a federal government can just look at a project and say, nope, that's ours to regulate now. And uh, turns out the Supreme Court wasn't all that happy with that because... Uh, some things are just given to the provinces to regulate very clearly under the Constitution, and the federal governments, well, if you squint at it this way, we can kind of make an argument that this somewhat falls under federal jurisdiction, just uh, didn't fly. So a chunk of the act was found to be constitutional, sections 81 to 91. Those are the parts that allow the federal government to regulate projects on federal lands, effectively, which no one was debating in this situation. The question was, can the federal government step in and decide to apply its uh, scheme to require impact assessments be done for projects like dams that are solely within a province? Um, some And Part of the challenge here, it seems like, and I'm going to refer to a piece in the Tai that Elizabeth May wrote, uh, the first time we've seen her name come up in like three months, but this is actually a pretty interesting piece because it's right in her wheelhouse of like environmental law, which she has been following for decades. Uh, she cheers the court decision. She is on side with striking this down because she points out she hated it from the day it was introduced because it didn't do what she wanted it to do and did it in a bad way, which she said, and now the court has agreed. Um, a big challenge here is that the scheme relies on designated projects for those not on, well, for everything pretty much, where the cabinet can basically decide or the minister gets to decide which projects reach into this act and then the government has to, federal government steps in on. And as you say, that's overbroad. That's overbreadth. Now, this isn't to say there's no role for the federal government in environmental assessments because we had an act before this, or at least we had an act from Brian Mulroney's era until 2012 when Harper repealed it that allowed the federal government and had the federal government involved in doing impact assessments and environmental assessments on basically every project. So they were doing thousands a year. 
and almost all of them were approved or they were given some guidance to improve their situation. And that one wasn't ruled unconstitutional when it was challenged or it was improved over the years. And so there is a role if the federal government chooses to make sure the environment is protected, but it can't be in this cabinet gets to decide what they don't like way. Yeah, the the arbitrariness of it uh, was a big part of it. And I mean, the uh, on the Alberta Court of Appeals decision uh, was like absolutely scathing on this and the Supreme Court was a little more measured, but uh, yeah, they, they were pretty clear that uh, there actually has to be like a rational connection to the federal government's jurisdiction on this stuff. It can't just be a because uh, we feel like it, which was basically what the uh, law was on it. The ministers that are responsible for the portfolios, Dubot and... Um, I'm blank on the natural resource minister right now. Um, Is it Wilkinson? Wilkinson? Yes. Uh, after the court decision was announced, they basically came out with a, yeah, well, it's no big deal. Just uh, a few tweets needed to uh, get this working. And that was more spin than um, anything serious. Because uh, while the court left the clearly within federal jurisdiction stuff in tap, they did not... Uh, give a huge amount of latitude on the uh, things within provincial jurisdiction under the model that uh, they propose. So if it's just going to come back as a tweet, it's probably going to get slapped down again. Yeah, and just to clarify, sorry, I misspoke. I said 7-2, to two, it was 5-2. to two. I forgot the court has had some shake-ups in its makeup over the past couple of years. Um, the one thing, you know, tiny thing in the government's favor is that like as a reference case it doesn't immediately strike it down it just says yeah this is probably unconstitutional but it would take an actual case to pull the relevant section of the charter and constitution to actually do that but i mean like, we've no we've never yeah we, we've never had a situation i think where a government has like failed a reference case and then been like yeah but we're gonna try it anyway um I mean, I I would not put it past Gibo uh, to try that, but uh, I I just can't see a lower court in the with a uh, very clear federal reference case on this going like you guys actually you know it's only a reference case that they almost certainly smacked that down. So lots of work to be done there. Um, I'll link Elizabeth May's piece in the show notes i think it's a good read for anyone who's who was disappointed to see this be struck down uh and you know she kind of goes through exactly what she would do in place which i think would presumably be to just bring back a version of the mulrooney ironically uh would it be? Is it no, well, ironic? like she worked. Yeah, it's more the Mulroney government. At one it's more point. Like, like ironic now that for, the conservatives are so like anti environmental regulations that you're appealing to the like old conservatives who had some support for environmental regulations. That's all I meant with ironic. But it's more a commentary on how the Conservative Party of Canada has shifted its ground over the years. 
And it's a good reminder of how in 2012, we used, or Stephen Harper used an omnibus bill to just gut environmental regulations in this country and pulled us out of the Kyoto Accord at the same time. Fun times. Going back to other news on the Trudeau side, one of those past scandals that we talked about way back when was the SNC-Lavalin affair where Josie Wilson-Raybould refused to, uh, you know, heed the government's direction on this and eventually resigned and was kicked, resigned her way out of the party entirely, I believe, or was she kicked out? It all blurs together. She's no longer an MP because of this. And one of the things that came up during that whole saga, and the ethics commissioner at the time did indict the government for its treatment of the issue, um, was whether or not there were criminal elements to how Trudeau and cabinet pressured Jody Wilson-Raybould, allegedly. And ultimately, the RCMP did not pursue an investigation, which led the group Democracy Watch to file the correct A-tips to get the reasons that the RCMP decided not to. Uh, and the official reason was Parliament or Cabinet denied a waiver of confidence documents, so they didn't have the information they would need to probe the affair, in part. I mean, why would they waive it? I th this is a fundamental problem here is that uh, if you the government's being investigated have a zero incentive to be forthcoming on all of this unless it becomes absolutely politically impossible not to do that, which sets a very high bar because in a lot of cases you won't actually be able to see the things that would make it politically ne necessary to reveal them if they're not revealed ahead of time. So it's a bit of a catch-22 on that. And like fundamentally, the reason why cabinet confidence exists is because you want people to be able to give their honest assessments and analysis about decisions the government makes without having to second guess how they will be perceived in the public eye uh, with this stuff. So, you know, very similar like executive privilege in the U.S. on this is that you basically want people to be truthful, not uh, trying to play for the cameras or future historians or whatnot on there. Um... So, like, that's the reason why it exists. And, I don't know, maybe there is some room to, well, still respecting that general principle. And, let's be clear, it's a very good principle. Because we don't want, you know, important decisions um, to be solely done for appearance reasons or that the advice the prime minister gets to be solely about you know how it makes the advice giver look on that but there's probably some room to yeah maybe tweet where the boundaries of that are or give you know the supreme court or something the ability to um 
make it easier to uh, unseal cabinet documents when there's like a very clear criminal probe that is uh, necessary to uh, have those to proceed. Or at least that is my uh, constitutional spitball take on it all. Yeah, the documents also disclose two other possible reasons to not pursue criminal charges or a full criminal uh yeah the documents also disclose two other reasons not to pursue criminal charges one is that the ethics commissioner i guess uh had was under an obligation that if he found evidence of criminal wrongdoing he would have to suspend his investigation and he didn't do that now he didn't have access to everything that might have been valuable here but you know that is that is a reasonable ground to be like at least see the RCMP as doing something reasonable. The other thing they say is that Jody Wilson-Raybould never called the actions criminal. She, The report says her opinion that the pressure did not impede her performance of her duties and that it did not amount to a criminal misconduct, in essence, might defeat a criminal prosecution. I'm not sure I fully understand that argument as well kind of just blaming Jody Wilson-Raybould for choosing her words carefully. I, I, mean, I kind of get it. So, um, I mean, I, I kind of get that. Like, in order for a police service to investigate something, there needs to be, like, a reasonable suspicion of a crime. And, you know, if the person who is at the center of basically laying out the alleged series of events doesn't suggest there's a crime, yeah, speaks against it, and... You know, it could be a case where it is improper, even illegal, but not necessarily criminal. Because, like, not everything that breaches the law is a criminal offense, where the RCMP are the ones to pursue and eventually, uh, with the prosecutors, lay charges. So... Yeah, it's entirely possible that the Trudeau government did something outside the bounds of the law, but is nevertheless not something where a police investigation and criminal charges necessarily flow from that. Like, the remedy could be other means. In theory, the remedy was at the ballot box, and I guess they did get a bit punished following this. They, 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 went, they went from a majority government to minority. Yeah. I mean, a certain amount of that may be the uh, the blackface allegations that came out in the campaign, but you know, there's there was a political price to pay. Finally, the records also suggested that the commissioner, at the end of its initial assessment in 2021, pushed to ensure the RCMP had quote pushed as hard as possible and exhausted all avenues to get evidence, and the. Follow-ups to that request are redacted, as is the legal opinion, which isn't surprising. Um, so we don't know what the like final, final word from the RCMP is, but we do know that they didn't press charges in the end. Uh, this has led conservatives to be very frustrated, and they are going to present a motion at the House of Commons Ethics Committee soon to uh, ask the committee to study this. So maybe... We'll get to hear more about this. Which would be another one of those uh, non-criminal remedies. So yeah, probably not the last we've heard of this, but uh, 
Actually, you know what? Uh, on second thought, yeah, it's probably going to be the case where it does not get past committee because actually, I'm not sure what the uh, major of the ethics committee is. Um, like the block isn't going to vote for reopening this because they saw the whole SNC Lavalin thing as basically going after a Quebec company and a fairly major one at that. I don't know. And like the NDP, it's hard to say. Like the liberals are obviously vote against it. The NDP just may want to move on. So I, I could potentially see this basically just dying in the committee uh, when the motion's introduced. Well, the NDP does have something they want to focus on. They had their convention this past weekend, and I almost thought we weren't going to talk about their convention, but there there was some interesting things happened. I think the least interesting thing in some ways is that they brought forward this emergency motion, as they can do at their conventions, and passed it unanimously that the party has to support Pharmacare, uh, and if the liberals don't deliver on it, they should break their deal. And specifically, the party wants to see a universal, publicly run pharmacare thing delivered by the by the government, uh, or else it's time for an election. Um, that's what's the actual emergency on this? Uh, like, the NDP's <sighs> been talking about pharmacare for decades. I. There's nothing new about the, that. There's the, not gonna be- the emergency angle I could see justifying why you had to bring it forward this way rather than usual process of going through local electoral district associations is that the liberals haven't brought forward the bill yet and the NDP party, the caucus, is actually negotiating the subject matter of the bill right now. And so the six-month process to get a motion to the floor of the convention wouldn't have you know connected um the the real point of this motion is to give jugmeet singh a bit more leverage to like push on the health minister and the prime minister to be like make your bill better maybe like at most it basically means the liberals won't be second guessing whether or not the party would is behind him on this but like there was never really a clear sign that that was ever in doubt and in terms of leverage ntp basically doesn't have any like yeah they can threaten to uh break the confidence and supply agreement or they can uh threaten to bring down the government even but everybody can read the same polls and everybody knows that all else being equal, if they go to an election, the end result is going to be a conservative majority at this point. I, it's the only leverage is mutual self-destruction on that, and I just don't think things that can actually effectively sell the "I'm just uh, crazy enough that I'm going to uh, drop this grenade I'm holding with no pin in it." in the room with all of us in it. Like that that is just not his style and it's not something uh that I can see fundamentally changing the liberals uh view on this unless they are it's 
way more desperate and frightened by the polls than the numbers actually suggest. Well, the thing that's really interesting is what they're arguing about right now with the federal liberals is a draft pharmacare bill, which isn't pharmacare as a whole. It's just the initial, you know, token legislation to move things forward. And by some other reports, what the health minister has presented to the NDP for consideration before they table it has been insufficient. And so the Liberals can find a way to, you know, still slow this down or get something that is, you know, on paper and meets maybe the terms of the agreement. But I guess then, you know, we still don't have pharmacare. Um, Because, like, the Liberals passed a Child Care Act. That didn't create the child care program. The budget did. Right? Yeah, so, like, that's... I mean, if anything, just... uh, Shows that there's probably not a huge amount of, like, political upside for, like, playing real hardball on this. Yeah, I get that it's, like, an NDP priority, but... I'm not sure there's going to be a huge amount they actually stand to gain by going to the line with this. Farmer care just isn't like that high a salience issue for a lot of Canadians. And if they actually get close to bringing down the government on that, I'm not sure there's going to be any upside for them when it comes to... uh, an ensuing election from that. I mean, pharmacare is wildly popular in every survey that people put have put out on the I issue. Mean, yes, the do you want free uh, free stuff? Well, and it generally pulls well, regardless of the specifics. In terms of you know issues that people are having with society, um, affordability and healthcare are riding pretty high, and this ties into both of those. If you can say to people, "We are going to eliminate your drug costs." And we are going to get you drugs, which help with your health care. It doesn't solve all the issues, but it is one that matters. Uh, interestingly, this week, the Parliamentary Budget Office also delivered a new estimate on what pharmacare would cost the country. And they used the current model that Quebec has for its pharmacare program to run its estimates. And they pr- pegged the total cost. So this is the money spent by provinces and the federal government combined at $11 billion for the next year, which would increase to $13.4 billion in 2027. And they note that that amount of money is over a billion dollars less than we are currently spending on drugs as a country through all of our complicated, you know, out-of-pocket uh, private insurance and some public programs. So we would save $1.4 billion this year and 2.2 in 2027. So there's a value to doing this economically too. That wasn't the only thing the convention did though, beyond pharmacare, which we already knew the NDP liked. Um, a number of members were frustrated and we saw that through the leadership vote, but also through some of the other uh, spit takes that people were giving to you know, news, news reporters who were there. Uh, the star ran a headline, this is garbage. Uh, as one member said of the deal with the liberals, uh, some people are very happy, some people are very frustrated, which sounds like every NDP convention I've been to. 
But to quantify it more realistically, uh, Jugmeet Singh had got the lowest approval rating of any uh, NDP leader in history who kept the job at 81%. Well, that's kept the job for now. Well, yeah. So Mulcair got yeah. 48%. He was forced out of the job. <laughs> yeah, like he, that was just an absolute loss on that one. The more than half of delegates want you out. So the weird thing is there is no actual bar on what the right number is. I mean, Joe Clark kind of set uh, the floor on that as like an informal rule that you know, a lot of uh, politicians will observe if they, you know, get less than like a clear mandate. I can't remember Joe Clark's. It was like a 60 something, I think, uh, or like maybe even a low 70s on that. Um, I, there is somewhere between a under the rules, more than half people want you gone, you're gone, and a uh, there's just such an overwhelming s- strength of support here that things are rock solid and there's nothing to worry about. And it's a clear mandate to proceed. There is like a fuzzy middle ground in there somewhere, and it's not entirely clear where this is. Like, this basically means one in five new Democrats are do not want him to continue. And, you know, there's no one in the offing challenging him. There's no one selling memberships right now to try and um, change what that number is. And still, a fifth of uh, people don't want him in there. Like, that's that's the sort of thing that hints at weakness and dissatisfaction that, you know, the... The ninety-eight percent that uh, Layton got in uh, twenty eleven just did it. So it could very well could be the case that uh, while this is a strong enough number to carry forward, and there's no pressure to resign the way there would have been if uh, he'd performed the way Joe Clark did. <clears throat> Nevertheless, it, it's a weak enough showing that this could potentially open up uh, a conversation that Singh doesn't want to have. For the record, in 1981, Joe Clark got 66.5% support uh, in that review. like a solid two-thirds. In 1983, he actually increased it to 66.9%, but that he had deemed was not enough, uh, even though it was almost the same. But... It's, it's it's not also, a resounding endorsement in either way. He was he basically set the bar at seventy five percent for himself. Uh, Jason Kenny in two thousand twenty two got was it only twenty twenty two? Jesus, uh, it has been a long couple of years. <laughs> he got fifty one point four percent, and that was and then he stepped down after saying, "My my number is fifty percent plus one." <laughs> so. Yeah, seventy percent and below is definitely your dead on arrival territory. Seventy to eighty is hard to see you holding on. Low eighties is ooh. Uh, but notably, like the NDP's rules have changed over the years, and it was only starting in about two thousand six that they really had leadership reviews. Prior to that, there would be conventions, and it was just automatic that the leader would 
win unless someone came forward and said, I want to challenge them. That happened in, I think, 1972, and David Lewis you know, got 90%, it was fine. Alexa McDonough was challenged in 2001, and she got 82%, uh, and she was out in 2003, after which Jack Layton became the leader. So, yeah, well, there you go. This is... <clears throat> there, he's in the danger zone, or coming up on it, uh, for sure. It, it's also weird that we have a system where 50% plus one is enough to... Uh, make someone the leader but they need it to clear a much higher bar to stay the leader I, there, there's a well technically you group. only need 50 percent plus one to stay the leader yeah it just is unhealthy for an organization well, to it, hate you that much yeah and like, kenny clearly was saying that because he wanted to have room to maneuver if he got 65 percent he wanted to be able to to fight it out and not set a you know, well, if it's you know eighty percent or I'm gone on that. Like there's, like you said, there's clearly a point where it becomes untenable to uh, carry on when the party's that split. Anyway, Singh survives to fight another day, but uh, based on that, his uh, days may be numbered, or, or at the very least, this may be the. Uh, the beginning of the end for his time as leader. And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Playtoast is a production of Legend Boot Media and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening.